Welcome to PH Divas. This is Zain Yao. This is part one of a two-part series where I brought together a teaching support group that I organized last semester for women of color graduate students in the English department, where we're talking about, well, strategies for teaching. As for most of you, I'm sure like the semester is either coming to an end or is at an end. Grades are in, teaching evaluations are in. And as we know from many studies now, uh, biases in teaching against women and, and particularly women of color, people of color, is a very real quantifiable thing in the academy. So I hope you enjoy this series. Um, this is, in this first part, we're probably going to, we're talking mostly about attitudes um, and approaches. And in the second part, we'll be talking more about specific strategies. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome to an episode of PH Divas. Um, this is a very special episode. Uh, one of our listeners, Cassie, requested that we do an episode about teaching well women of color. And I thought it'd be really awesome to bring in some of the people I know, uh, awesome women I know, who are part of this teach, uh, teaching support group specifically for women of color that I organized last semester. Um, and it seemed like a really great opportunity to bring them all together and have a conversation. So we have four other people in the room right now, Liz, Aurora, Mariana, and Rania. And you go around the room and introduce yourselves, say a little about like where you're on the program, what you do. Cool. Um, so I'm Elizabeth Nernice-Alexander. I'm a second-year PhD in English. Um, should we talk about our research? If you want to, cool? you can say briefly, yeah. Um, yeah, I do, uh, I guess, African-American lit, uh, queer women's lit. Yeah. Hi, I'm Aurora. Uh, I'm Asum Javed, <laughs> and I'm a second-year MFA student in poetry. Um, well, hi, I'm Mariana Alarcón. I am a second-year PhD student in the English department. I do uh, Chicano and Native American literature. Um, hey, I'm Rhea. I'm a third-year MFA slash lecturer, poet, teacher lady. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, where we are right now is end of term as everyone's <sighs> end of term grading comes in. I was trying to, grading. I know. I was trying to reassure one of my undergrad friends because she's like talking about studying for everything, and she's like, "I hope I do well." And I was like, "We hope you do well too," because it's really <laughs> exhausting to grade things that are not good. After I actually it. noticed yesterday grading that it takes me maybe twice as long to read a bad essay. Yes, because then like you get exhausted and you have to put it aside for a while, and then you come out like, and I get oh, mad. Why is it so bad? Sorry. Well, you know, I have a hard time commenting on good papers like what do I say you write better than I do <laughs> I'm 10 years older than you are it, that's that's rough okay my ego can't take it <laughs> but yeah I was hoping that we'd talk about the experience of teaching well women of color in general also um obviously a, a lot of us also teach in the areas of race gender and sexuality and obviously there's unique challenges that present themselves both for our subject matter and for our physical embodiment in the classroom. Our listeners are probably aware that there's been many studies done about biases against women and people of color and of course women of color in the classroom and teaching evaluations of all kinds um, that, and yeah, like, so that's a little bit of context and I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about those experiences or what strategies people have or whatever comes to mind, I guess. That no, was just. You know, I, I I kind of put off reading my evaluations for a while, and then I was like, you know, I just tore them up. Okay, I'm going to read them all. And I had this one student uh, who wrote that I I geared all our class conversations, uh, or I, I turned all of our class conversations into a sort of a platform for me to air 
personal grievances with society. I had a similar um, And I know exactly who that was, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's, I, I have to say, like, you know, last year, the, the ratio of students of color to not to not students of color in my class certainly did not favor the students of color. Um, and I, it was really hard to have a, a, that conversation with, with these predominantly white students, uh, have a conversation that I was already approaching in such a very different way. And this semester, when like the ratio certainly did favor the students of color, at least a little more, at first I was really excited and I felt sort of a little safer. Mm-hmm. And then the overwhelming sense of responsibility hit me. You know, like, and I guess I kept thinking, do I have it in me to be the, the instructor that these students need to be? Do, do I have it in me to help them think through the stuff that they need my help thinking through, you know? Uh, and, and that was kind of frightening. And I, I hope I, I did okay. I had a really great batch of students this time around, but it's almost like, I, f- I guess, uh, I almost face a different set of problems, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, Liz, do you want to speak to that? Like, <clears throat> Yeah. Um, so the similar comment that I had on my evaluations was um, one of my students, and similarly, I know exactly who it was. Yeah. Um, she was like, everyone we read last semester um, was a woman of color, or actually was a black woman, um, if not a black queer woman. And I said that on day one, and it was in the syllabus. Like, it was very clear what up was front. Class two? Um, it, it was true stories. Oh, yeah. It was um, one of the group description classes. But on the first day, class I made it very clear like we're going to be reading black women we're going to be reading queer women then at the end of the semester on the evaluation she was like you know I mean the student was like you know these conversations about race and oppression got tiresome and I was also kind of pissed off that she used the word tiresome of all words um it was just uh I was sick of talking about this why don't we talk about other things and it was I was it was upsetting in two ways one because I said all this on the first day of class during ad drop Mm -hmm. so she could have dropped the class um the other thing was that uh if I feel like it was just a very annoying resistance to like thinking about um new ideas new ways of seeing the world I feel like even if it didn't reflect in our class conversations, it seemed like last semester and this semester, students were at least thinking about things. Mm-hmm. They were at least receiving material um, and willing to say, you know, this is new to me and I will maybe not agree with it, but at least be somewhat open to it. Mm-hmm. And the student was just like, oh, this is boring. I don't want to talk about this. Do you guys want to talk about that? It seems Sorry, like that type of that well, no, it's okay. it's okay. Like there's, it definitely seems to be the experience. Like we're always, I don't know what that is, <laughs> <laughs> but coming up against this type of resistance that because we're we're talking about teaching all first year um, seminars, and that means that we're talking to we're teaching to non majors to students from all different backgrounds across the university. So on the one hand, it's a sort of unparalleled access that we get to students early in the careers to like help shape their writing but also perhaps their critical thinking and ideology, but at the same time, like, there's such a challenge that knowing, like, where people are in their knowledge about pretty much anything in life, much less academia or reading. It's literally anything in life. Like, I've had a lot of students who are, like... Yeah, I I feel like there have been many moments of, like, students realizing life things, and I'm like, really? But 
did you did you feel that like the way you do your job? I guess like I guess that's the only way I can say it. Uh, changed depending on the group of students you were trying to teach, like in that given semester. I completely had to rethink my my, my approach with the second group. You know, I don't know. It's like the, the problems always tend to shift slightly. Yeah, maybe you, Rainier Aurora. Do you want to talk yet? Um, I really wish I could answer that. I have to think about it, but okay. I will go back, right? Yeah. Um, to think about evaluations because I, I remember getting my first semester of teaching one um, that said that I was I had too much racial affiliation. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so exactly. You're black. When you're that, too racially affiliated. Like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> you know, I, I did it. So first, it's like, okay, so this thing, it's not just... racial <laughs> Right. And what um, does that mean? Because you teach a really diverse curriculum. I do. I do. And I do it on purpose. But uh, I remember, and maybe this is a little too emotional, but I remember reading that and saying, whoa, that student sat in my class, you know, the whole semester. And it gave me, like, a really eerie feeling, right? Um, that you just don't know who you're talking to, you know, and I had never really, I mean, I, I actually similarly kind of know who that student was, um, and one of their other comments, which, uh, kind of bothered me was that, like, I didn't care about writing, I only cared whether they were racist, which, in, I, I think, I, I, think writing, but I, care a bit more. I do think I care a little bit more, um, <laughs> whether you're racist, you know, uh, <laughs> But that's sort of missing the boat of how they didn't see that rape being racist. Like, yeah, that's kind of actually awful. And you don't call someone too racially affiliated, right? Um, and that I, I I didn't know that they were having these thoughts this whole semester and they sat and there. You were looking at them in the face. Was, yeah, yeah. And, and they're it, looking at you and thinking too racially affiliated. <laughs> <laughs> right? It just was troubling. It was really, really troubling. Um, and I guess sort of to speak to... Uh, what you were saying, the next semester, I kind of carried over that um, uh, apprehension with yeah. my students, right? Uh, I didn't trust them. <laughs> I mean, I guess I never should have trusted them, right? Uh, but yeah, I, I think that that first semester, I didn't know that that was possible. Mm-hmm. And then that second semester, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, there was a larger distance between me and the students, and I think it's kind of continued. Um, even though I've been reaffirmed that, you know, mm-hmm. The conversations that I have and the texts that I assign are helpful to some and they're interested. Uh, I think that that kind of prepared me for the kind of distance I needed to have um, so that I didn't, so that it didn't hurt to hear something like that again. Yeah, I feel like it changes a lot depending on the group. Um, my first semester, my students were like very open and touchy feely and like warm and definitely had some fucked up opinions. Can I swear? Yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely swore before. <laughs> but, like, they were honest about them, and then we could talk about them. Yeah. And I felt like it was useful to have, I don't know. We had, like, very difficult conversations. And surprisingly, a lot of my students of color were the ones that had... The most resistance? No, odd ideas. Like... Oh. I had a student who was really interested in colorblindness, and he was like, well, because I'm half white, half black, like, I can see the value of colorblindness. And it was like a, like, okay, how do we talk about this, and what does that mean exactly? And 
like your parents have probably experienced very different things in the world and so I don't know I feel like I've had a lot of really useful conversations but I had to like very much meet them where they were at and it pushed me to challenge a lot of my assumptions too uh, and then this semester, I feel like my students are generally more on board and also more resistant. Like, they're, like, more willing to say the things they think I want to hear, <laughs> but they are, like, when they reach a wall, they push really hard. Like, we read Citizen, and I had a bunch of students mm -hmm. be like, tennis is not a racist sport. Wow. And we were all tennis players, all white men. And I was like, oh. But you were saying about Citizen... Oh, I felt like this semester I had to do a lot of, like, they would say something and I'd be like, oh, shoot, we need to backtrack. And, like, I need to educate you about a bunch mm -hmm. of things that you seemingly don't know. But I also front-loaded, last semester I thought I front-loaded too much, where I was like, let's watch an entire day's worth of just, like, YouTube videos about all the things that are horrible that our American government has done. Mm -hmm. And so they left after an hour and 25 minutes, like, oh, shoot. And I was like, well, I shouldn't do that this semester. That seemed like too much. But then my students were non-convinced by the text that we were reading. And I was like, this is not about... The, the texts don't need to convince you of anything. These are just <laughs> facts. These are real things that are happening to real people. And you have a resistance to them. So let's figure out why you're resistant. And the, the students... I had one student who was... Um, particularly resistant and he was like well if if I have to believe all of this and see that everything is racist then I have to change my entire world view <coughs> and I was like well that's I mean that's legitimately hard and scary like I understand that that's difficult for someone the first time that they become aware of something you know and he was like new to America um that's fair. I take back the laugh. <laughs> the laugh what? was that, like, it's interesting that that idea is so crazy that, like, oh, my God, I have to change the way I think about things. Like, yes, you do. You're in college. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, but I see what like, you're saying. But I think, political consciousness, like, one of the first things that you experience is sadness, like, an immense weight and guilt. Yeah. And, and how do you well, yeah, that? Even as a person of color, like, I remember being younger and I was resisting because oh, I didn't totally. want to think of myself as being that vulnerable, yes. you know? And, and I was and racist so against my own mother. Like, yeah. I had an unbelievable amount of internalized bullshit yeah, that I was, same. like, putting onto my family. And that's was hard to unlearn and is still a process of unlearning. So, like, I, I'm not judging him. I think that he was being really honest mm -hmm. and honest in a way where that challenged him to check himself, right? Because he was admitting, like, oh, this is scary. Okay, well, then what do you do about that? Yeah. Do you, like, continue forward or do you, like, pedal backwards? And it speaks something to the, the comfort that you're able to create in that space that your student was able to admit that because, like, I guess the way I always point to perspective is, like, I'm trying to teach my students in the way that I wish I was taught, and that's because I feel like I had very little political consciousness in my undergrad. Like, maybe in the Canadian system, because influenced by the British, it's much more conservative. It's, like, just about text. We didn't talk about race or maybe a little bit about gender. And for me, I had to sort of come to this on my own. So, like, I think that my students are all much more advanced and are getting much more access to things than, than I did. So, like, I'm sort of envious of them because I think I was far more ignorant than they were for much longer, really. And I'm trying to give them the opportunities I wish I had earlier to, to think through the ways that critical thinking and critical reading translate from the classroom space to my life and to make those barriers permeable and porous for them. 
I think that's one of the good pieces of advice that I've gotten from uh, multiple mentors uh, is in uh, in trying in the process of trying to figure out how to, uh, I guess, gauge my success this semester. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been coming at it from a perspective of you like, you know, my students aren't baby revolutionaries like Mm -hmm. I failed. And it was also it was similarly with Citizen uh, this semester. I don't know what it was, uh, but Citizen was not a favorite text. Or maybe just for our listeners who might be less familiar, do you want to say something about what is is Citizen? Uh, So Citizen is a a really awesome book of poems by Claudia Rankine that everyone should read. Mm -hmm. Um, And it partially or well, in large part, I think deals with uh, moments of microaggression. So noticing uh, moments uh, in which um, sort of not uh, explicit acts of racism or oppression, but um, I think what Rankin calls it is like uh, moments where. Um, like race enters the room and two people are trying to figure out what to do with the 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 history that has entered the room. Um, that's I guess a very uh, academic way of explaining microaggression. Um, but essentially dealing with these moments of tension and also dealing with um, larger moments of like police brutality, um, sort of terrorism against black and brown bodies. Um, and one large section of it deals with Serena Williams and um, in general the way that she's been um, sort of lambasted by white uh, tennis media who don't want to accept that this like very strong powerful black woman is the face of a lily white sport Mm -hmm. um and so there's one part in Citizen where there's a picture of Jennifer Capriati um, when, uh, or no, not Jennifer Capriati, Carolyn Wozniacki when she stuffs her top and her shorts uh, mimicking Serena Williams. And similar to Aurora, my students were very unwilling to accept that like this was a racist act. They were like, um, oh, they're friends. Right, they're oh, friends. Like, oh, she's just joking. Because <laughs> she's the one black friend she has, right? Um, so, oh, so even after we gone through this whole history of the black female body, we talked about Sarah Barman. We talked about um, the differences in the way that Serena Williams' body has been viewed than, like, Carolyn Wozniacki. They were finally like, fine, I guess. <laughs> like, are you serious? Like, and part of it is the backtracking, like, because the picture to me is so obviously racist that when they were resistant, I was like, well... I, you know, I did have to think about why this picture is racist. What is the history um, that leads up to this moment? Um, but in those moments, I was thinking of, um, or it felt like a kind of teaching failure that I wasn't able to sort of ask the question or say the thing that would get them to say, like, oh, this is clearly a moment of racism, like Claudia Rankine is um, critiquing X, Y, and Z. But my mentors were kind of saying, like, a, a different way of thinking about success is just knowing the fact that you've exp- exposed your students to things that mm-hmm. they would not have read otherwise. Um, and taking that really literally, like my many of my students had never heard of any of the authors that we read all semester. And I had students of color in my class, hadn't heard of Alice Walker, Whoa. hadn't heard of Audre Lorde. Hadn't heard of James Baldwin. Hadn't heard of James Baldwin. That, I mean... <laughs> 
but I mean, those are moments of success. Mm-hmm. Like we, they are literally experiencing literature that in four years they would not have experienced. And I saw this more last semester, especially when we read Zombie. I had a lot of students who started thinking about themselves differently, um, not in very personal ways, but just thinking about relationships and things differently. Um, and those are moments of success, even if I can't see them immediately, just knowing that this student has experienced a thing that they would not have experienced otherwise, and I did that, and that means something. I think you open a door, and, like, yeah. hopefully it's the first of many. <laughs> hopefully people will continue nudging them and pushing them along, and eventually they take it upon themselves to, like, walk the walk. But I think the door opening is really important. Like, yeah. go chat. <laughs> I felt so proud when, um, like, I, so last semester I did teach an upper-level class, Black Power, Yellow Apparel, and I was so delighted to see that when I t- was teeing for Intro to Asian American Studies this semester, like, a bunch of my former students, both from this upper-level class and from my intro class, were inspired to take Intro to Asian American Studies because of that class, because they wanted to know more about being Asian American, or one of my students who took my sexual politics class actually said, like, I went to IVQ, the queer, queer oh. college clients, and he's like, I want, and I wanted to know, am I a person of color, and what does that mean? And I was like, yes! <laughs> so, like, you know, there, there are all these successes that um, we probably don't get to see, but really do exist. Um, and I'd also say, like, perhaps this also comes to, like, a technical problem that, like, lesson planning only takes you too far. You can't micro, like, yeah. plan every moment, and there's this like, element of contingency and flexibility that we need in the classroom to respond to, like, these moments of resistance and trying to think about how we translate to be teachable or can't that become really difficult. But I think it's also sort of exciting. Like, for me, one for one class, I realized that we had to just put one class aside and say, okay, we have to talk about the use of the N-word or, like, things like that. Or when I realized that we're reading, like, older texts that used outdated racial terminology, like, I had to... And, like, I find, like, a lot of people do complain, like, when you teach, like, 19th or earlier... Um, earlier texts, like, students end up not knowing where the quotes end in their own writing begins, so they often end mm-hmm. up using the terms in their writing, and so that means that rather than, and rather than being frustrated with them, I actually try to have sit down and, like, have this whole conversation about what language do we use, what does it mean to use it as a quote versus your own language. Um, one of my friends, for example, had, had an interesting moment where in the midterm evaluation, her student said, like, we're reading too many women, and so she made it, like, this lesson that she had them write down the board, okay, so which of these writers are gendered as men and which are women and it turned out like it was exactly equal but their students still thought felt like there were more women it's like so let's talk about why we think this is the case my students just assume everyone is a man oh interesting (laughs) every poet is a he until you like put another one yeah i'm gonna say i did have there's this really interesting um do you remember like a couple years ago this whole controversy i think um from B.S. Naipaul or someone else saying, like, like women writers write a certain way. Um, but what happened is The Guardian did this really great quiz where they had all these excerpts of writing and had to guess what the gender of the author mm-hmm. was. And I actually ha- had our class do that and, like, vote, like, okay, this thing about flowers, who wrote it? Like, and we'll have a, do a vote and be like, no, that was just, uh, I don't know, Hunter S. Thompson, you know? <laughs> and that was actually ended up being a pretty fun, fun thing to do because I think it helped to explode some of the notions of how they gender different writers. I have my students take the um, Harvard implicit bias mm. tests. I don't ask them for their results, yeah. so I don't know how many of them actually take it, but it's been, I think it's it was really useful, A, seeing how many of the tests they have, because there's like 12 mm. of them. There's like, mm. here, take a test about body image, take a test about 
uh, racism. <laughs> but uh, I wonder if if they take them, which I hope at least some of them do, like whether that's informative or not, like to be able to check themselves. And then there was this other quiz that was like, is this 2016 or was this like 1965? Mm-hmm. And all of them were 2016, but they were such blatantly anti-black moments that most of the students are like, oh, I thought that would have been 45 years ago. And then everything is still present. And so I feel like those sorts of things make them realize, like, it's not over. <laughs> like, racism still exists. Uh, but it's it's a hard sell for some reason. Mm-hmm. Like, they, like, don't, like, quite believe you. And you're like, no, 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 these, these are the things on the table. Like, no one is arguing whether or not they're on the table. We're just trying to figure out what to do. Um, but it's, yeah, to convince them to see it on the table in the first place is difficult. I do this... Um sort of not I mean I guess it ends up being an implicit bias thing um it happened accidentally uh I like I would have them reading things aloud and then have them call on someone um instead of having me call on someone so you know I theoretically can leave the conversation and they can just talk to each other um and I happened to notice the first time that like after a guy got called on they would only call on guys until like eventually I think the first time I said something and then someone called on a girl and then the second time it happened in my uh, class second semester and I had a student who took the class twice and he realized what I was doing and called on a girl Um, but I thought that was interesting that even though we have all of these we've been you know talking about gender we've been talking about oppression we've been talking about trying to make the classroom uh, a safe space, a space where everyone can learn, like, and obviously if I had said, you know, are you sexist, none of the men in my class would have been like, yes. Um, but I thought that was interesting that it just sort of, um, yeah, their implicit biases came through in a way that uh, they couldn't deny, like, they couldn't, de- none of the guys could, not, did, could deny the fact that they had only called on men. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my students sit, like, completely segregated. Like, the mm. women all sit in the front half yeah. of the classroom. The men sit at the second That's half, like the and they all sit dance. next to someone <laughs> like, yeah. racially matched to them. So there's, wow. like, three mm. white women in a row. I just mm. noticed my two class sits the men. same way. Mm. Two white men. Like, and I can picture them all. And I've m- mentioned it, and we've mm-hmm. talked about it, and it just still would continue to happen. And they get so grumpy when you tell them to move seats. Oh, and I and I would. And then, like, the next day, I mean, the next class, it would be the same original seating arrangement that I hadn't arranged. They had just decided to sit that way. Wow. I guess, do people want to talk maybe about exercises or assignments in general that they've used to try and get students to reflect critically on either their own identity or in a text? And what has been useful for you as a strategy? I, okay, so... I struggle with this um, as an idea, right? Because I feel like this has been, teaching has been very much about like navigating like empathy and sympathy for me mm-hmm. because I all I often question myself, like, is my job to convert people? Like, mm-hmm. is that my job? Am I supposed to come into the room and have a student who feels a certain way and then get them to think my way? And I think some of it has, or to think in a way that I think is, I don't know, um, Good, better, more 
acceptable or uh, based in reality as I see the social reality. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with how I was educated, right? So I went to Howard University, which is an HBCU, and um, I feel like the conversation started in a different place, right? Um, then I remember coming here, and I'm like, oh, I can't start from, I guess, what was the middle, right? Um, and so this is not really answering your question. Because <laughs> so this is something I've been thinking about as you all are going around. Like uh, someone said something about um, not being a failure because your, chil- your, your children, your students <laughs> aren't baby revolutionaries or something like that. But I don't know if I've ever given myself that sort of metric. Like I don't know mm. that I've ever been like, I have to sort of do this kind of work. Um, and now I guess I'm sitting here and I'm reflecting and I'm thinking... Uh, do I, do I still now, like, feel as if that is um, not my job or is my job? I remember my first semester teaching, we read The Other Side of Paradise, which, which is an autobiography by Stacey Ann Chin, who is a poet, mm-hmm. activist, wonderful, awesome, like, badass woman uh, from Jamaica who's Chinese and black. And uh, I remember they were having <laughs> some trouble. I assigned, um, one of their assignments was to do a speech, which was supposed to be her at her sort of commencement, um, which was all sort of fictitious. And it was supposed to, like, use an anecdote from her life and then sort of expand upon, like, some sort of moral charge, right? Uh, which was a way for me to gauge what they took to be sort of the charge or the, um, moral, I guess, of the autobiography. And I remember a lot of them had these unearned aphorisms, like, if I was a lesbian and I was hurt and everything, you can make it too, right? And I remember uh, my response from that was to just take these unearned aphorisms and cut them up on slivers of paper and give them to them and their homework was to go home and refute it. I didn't say, like, is there something wrong with this? I was like, no, go home, tell me tell me why this is wrong, right? Like, tell me, like, fix it. Um, and I don't know, did I, did I hurt them by not thinking that that was a moment to instead say, is there something wrong with this, right? I don't know that I've ever started there. Or, what was um, their response? They fixed them. Right? You know, like like I thought they would. And I remember it was actually interesting. I had, that was a really, really eye-opening class um, because I had some students of color who I felt began to really lean on me and really come to me. Like, you know, I taught them, well, not taught them, but I, I, we talked about microaggressions and stuff like that. And they're like, Miss White, let me tell you about the microaggressions I experienced this week. And I'm like, oh, man, now I have all their stuff. But I remember in, in that class in particular, there was a, um, a white male student who... One of the things he said, he gestured to the room and he said, if we all got here, why does it matter where we came from? You know, if we're all in this room, gesturing to a freshman classroom at Cornell. And one of the students is like, well, because, you know, so the students were doing that work. So I never really thought about myself as having to do that work, which is interesting. Um, I don't know. This isn't speaking to your question. But it sounds I, like you had yeah. awesome classes. Yeah. I mean, not always, because then I'm too racially... That's true. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair um, enough. I think that, like, if, you, if there's, there's going to, you know, like, you can't... Those people sometimes go further into their little well. Like, I, I had mm. a student who was like, Aurora was so biased and didn't present any other viewpoints, you know, and, like... I know that she was a Republican. I know that that's, like, she's probably further in her beliefs now than she was before she took my class. And, like, well, I can't, I don't know what to do with that other than just, like, let it be. And I think that child would have had those feelings no matter what. 
But the other kids, like, they're the ones that that matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also I'd say that perhaps there's probably some unintended way where that student ended up perhaps being a foil for other students to think through their own ambivalence mm-hmm. about certain, um, certain moments. But I think that what's really useful that you're getting to, Rinia, is, like, that one thing as a teacher is really hard to get or uh, has to think about is like when do we tell them what to do versus try to set up the scenario in which they get to the conclusions themselves mm-hmm. and like I think you're talking about like sort of the, the way that we try to set up like, like an active process process of them in a guided way making those explorations on their own which can be really difficult sorry Maria oh no it's fine actually there's, actually, there's I think there's two things I want to talk about at once uh, so you know I, I something or said you know sometimes I wonder am I teaching to instruct or teaching to empower and how do I balance those two things you know and depending on how comfortable I feel in the class I feel like almost without even thinking about it I'll, I'll completely switch my my approach um, I did try you know I was teaching mystery novels this uh, uh, this year and I guess I tried to to, to gear that it's it's you know, we're studying genre fiction. I guess I was trying to get them to think about sort of about how criminality works, how how certain bodies are made criminal, you know. Uh, and we're, we were looking at sort of like hard boiled uh, fiction. We're looking at uh, Dashiell Hammett, and God knows that was easy. Uh, you know, uh, discussing discussing sort of uh, I had them I had them research Yellow Peril, the concept, and and they really really seemed to. This second semester, they really seemed to respond to uh, to that material, and I would often let them develop their own arguments for their papers and stuff. I never really like assign them something except to, to guide them. You know, these are the parameters of the assignment. This is what I want you to do. And on paper, they were very very happy to explore, you know, all all, all of these issues. But in person, it's almost like my students of color in class when when I try to sort of like steer steer that discussion, they almost didn't want to. Um, out themselves, if that makes sense. Like they, they, they didn't want to be known as sort of like as 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 the angry Taiwanese American kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to, so, so to some degree, they they'd sit there looking like, you know, deer in the headlights. And I wondered. I hope they don't feel like I'm trying to pressure them into responding because I don't want yeah. them to feel like that either, you know. And and almost like like, like they were they looked terrified, like they, like they could feel everybody's eyes on them. And so that was an interesting. I wasn't sure how to how how to navigate that. Um, and on paper, they seemed it's almost like they, they could let it all loose on paper. But the fact that I, that I I struggled to make them feel comfortable discussing it. And when they came to me, they they seemed to have a perfectly fine time discussing stuff with me. It's when I put them in, into in you know in, in a classroom setting that they seem to have a hard time with that. I don't know. So I I'm, I guess I was wondering if there's like some way that I could uh, do a, a kind of in class assignment that would that would make them feel more comfortable and I can't think of what what time I could do that wouldn't make them feel being put on the spot and terrified and unsafe like that you know yeah like I think this oh sorry I was gonna say like I feel like that's definitely an issue I've heard about this nightmare scenario where there was someone who worked in race that should have known better did the exact opposite which um, was like calling the one black student to talk about this text you know like and that's of course the, the worst possible way of, of going about it I found that for me one of the ways I do it is like I try to just focus on the text um, and so it feels like everyone has equal access to the text. But what I did, Black Power Yellow Apparel, because of the very name of the class, like I knew that I'd be getting students with a certain level of openness. I actually began the class with giving them at Cornell the Hurtado report. I don't know if you guys heard about that. Mm-hmm. It was that these researchers from UCLA came to Cornell and actually did a study about racial bias on campus and other types of bias. And so what I did is I printed out par- um, parts of this report and gave them to all the students so they could we could talk about race at Cornell as a way of opening the class, but talking about all the microaggressions that these other students experience but not them but to 
have it be close enough that they could talk about it. But and so it turned out that like my my carefulness and like giving them to having them talk about like the rhetoric of diversity versus the um, real the lived experience of it was was almost didn't need that text because my students were really willing to talk about it. But I think that that did give them like a common text that even for like my white students who um, really want to learn, like it, they could refer to that rather than having to feel like they had to speak from a place of experience. I think that was another uh, difficulty when reading Citizen in my class was that I was trying to get them to see um, that the experiences that Rankine is talking about are very quotidian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tried to say like, and, you know, this is partially me as a teacher not giving the kind, that kind of uh, background for that conversation. But I tried to say, like, you know, what is it like being a student at Cornell? Yeah. What is it like being a white student? What is it like being a student of color? Um, and I think a lot of uh, unfortunate class dynamics came into play, um, mainly that my loudest students, loudest in the sense of that they talk the most um, and are generally, you know, very on top of conversations, um, are international students. So they have very different experience, international students and freshmen. So they're having different experiences of race at Cornell than like my white students who were like, you know, everything is cool. Uh, we're all here. We're all smart. Like it, the stuff is awesome. Um, and then I had my American students of color were just not saying anything. Um, and it was a frustrating moment of being like, you know, I went to a PWI in undergrad. I know things are not cool here. <laughs> you could talk about it. But I wasn't really creating um, the kind of space necessary for um, that kind of conversation. And I wonder, like, um, I'm kind of, I don't know that it would have been, I, retrospectively, I wish I pushed less um, because I don't know that that kind of outing would have been uh, that productive. Um, it seems, you know, ultimately, I kind of have to accept that my students are, they were who they were in the beginning of the semester, and it's been 15 weeks, and I've shown them the things, and they are who they are now, um, and that's just sort of what it's going to be, but that trying to force them to understand really wasn't, uh, I guess force in a, sorry, now this comment is getting long, force in a complex way because it's partially me, uh, needing to remember where I was at 18 also in having these conversations. Um, as woke as I like to think I am now, I was not at 18. Yeah, um, and even if I were in my classroom, uh, this has actually been a useful teaching tool, trying to think of how I at 18 would be in my classroom and how I'd react to stuff. But I wouldn't have been particularly open to these conversations. I think I would have been alienated. Um, so, yeah, I think next semester, even, especially since the subject material is going to be a lot um, more, uh, it's going to pretty much only be about oppressed groups. No, uh, we'll find a different way to edit that. That's okay. What's, what's uh, it's, queer, it's queer women writers. Um, so we're talking about sort of how one writes being queer in mm-hmm. the world. Um since that's going to be the subject matter, I think it's going to be important for me to not try and, like, convert, um, get away from converting and just being like, here's an interesting text that I like, and here are some things I like about it. What do you like about it? Because 
because that's ultimately why I'm here, right? That's why we're all here, because we like books, yeah. and we want to show the kids the good books. Yeah, and that productivity is, I guess, the thing that I was thinking about always, right? Because if my goal is to get the students to recognize that a thing that I know is the social reality is the social reality, that feels sort of like pointing to a door rather than actually walking into it, right? Um, and I guess I... I guess the reason why I never really focused on that or made that a metric for myself is because, well, then we don't ever get to walk through the door, and that's what's fun for me, right? <laughs> I feel like some of them need the door pointed out to even know that the door is there. And I think the texts do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the texts point to the door. And then the tools of, like, how to walk through, like, for me, the small group discussions work a lot for... Because there's always dominant voices, and so... Mm-hmm. I just force them to talk to each other and then eavesdrop and write things on the board that they're all saying. Um, and a lot of self-reflection. Like we, It's like a modified privilege walk that we do in class. And I feel like even though it's pushing, it's really useful for them to notice that they themselves do or don't have privilege within oh. a college classroom. Oh, I was just going to say, could you just define what a privilege walk is? For so it's like a very modified version, because okay. I think a privilege walk can be jarring. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like they, they all stand around the classroom table, and like you step in based on certain statements. So mm-hmm. a statement might be like, I feel safe walking home um, at night in Ithaca. Step mm-hmm. in. And so certain students will step in, and often they are men, you know? Um, and the statements are really varied, and like it's a very superficial way of getting them to just first recognize certain privileges they have. Mm-hmm. So, like around ability, like is it easy for you to get from class to class? And then we talk about afterwards when we're processing, like, well, who would it be difficult for? Like, what? How would you get around if you were in a wheelchair? Do you know? Do you know what those resources are? And so, being able to think about people's experiences other than their own. And then the second part of the exercise was to write from someone else's perspective within the same scenario. Um, and so it helped them to see what the, the a perpetrator, is that also the right language, mm-hmm. might be thinking in that moment, or if they were the perpetrator, what the person who they were discriminating against might feel like. But it, it felt like from that, they were able to notice the way that those systems of oppression, whether they were writing about a microaggression, about uh, gender and race, or about ability, or about mental health, like, that the system was hurting everyone in the situation, um, which is, like, a really hard conclusion to come to and to, to tell someone is true, but I think at least that, like, opened the door and they could start to think about, is it true, and if so, what do, you know, where, how do we look at it differently? Um, as a system that is harmful for all, I don't know. It seems like the through line is just, like, getting them to question, even though, like, as we should also say the structure of the class that we have to teach is incredibly regimented. Um, so with it, with the freedom that we do have in the class, it seems like um, we're all trying to just get our, or not even just because it's a big goal, but... It's such a major first step just getting our students to question, say, Mm -hmm. there's a world that is not the world that I see. Um, And that's true for me. I feel like I'm learning and reminding, I'm learning, relearning and re-reminding myself of that every day that 
I'm not the only person on earth either, and there's so many other experiences that I need to be paying attention to and thinking about. Yeah. And I learned that from my students a lot. Yeah. I feel like I come into the classroom with a bunch of assumptions about who they are and what they've been through, and they're always proved wrong. And, and the, yeah, that's, like, a very rem- useful reminder that you're, like, constantly in process. And, of course, trying to teach them what they, what the, what they assume about their classmates is, is might not be correct. You know, I was trying to teach this one book about uh, the, the femicides uh, in Juarez. This was last semester, you know, and uh, and I was trying to, you know, uh, ask them to think about, you know, the, the ways in which sort of, like, living in, like, in, in constant fear can affect the way you you understand so your your ability to move through the world. Um, and this guy says, "Well, I mean, none of us here have, have lived and have lived in like a, in a war zone." I was like, uh, "You don't know that. <laughs> yeah, you, you do not know that. I could tell you from personal experience. You have no idea." Um, Things that it's they they can't even conceive of being in the same room with you know like uh, finding out that someone is a uh, in your it, one of your classmates is a, is a Palestinian refugee. This is something that. It, it, it's almost a kind of self-centeredness. This kind of terror can't exist in my world. Uh, and, and it is, like I said, a defensive mechanism at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, I, I find that even some of my students of color end up, uh, end up falling to the same trap. I had one student, uh, and he was, he was a brilliant kid. Uh, he wrote this entire paper about how he, uh, uh, about how he, uh, uh, one of his extracurricular activities was uh, he was uh, he beatboxed with his Muslim acapella group in his, at his high school. Like he was, he was just a great kid. Uh, but he wrote this paper defending Pinochet. Hmm. And, and, my, and my professor said, "Thing is, like at 18, it's all too sad for them. They have to they, even if when they learn about these horrible things, they have to rewrite it in ways that where their little 18 year old heads can cope with it. You know, um, and so that's a struggle too. I think." That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening for the first part of this two-part series about women of color teaching. It was so wonderful having this conversation with these four lovely women. Um, It was sort of funny that near the end, everyone was whipping out notebooks to take down um, other tips that we were exchanging. And it felt like a really productive and supportive space. And indeed, when I was making the proposal for this, this the this sort of uh, goal that I had that it would become a place for not just about practical exchange of ideas, but also a place for solidarity and coalition that we need so much in the Academy. I hope you enjoyed listening. This was PH Divas. Please, please like, rate, follow us, subscribe, all the type of good stuff. This is Zainyao out. Uh, thank you for listening.